Yeah, so there was the crucifixion of uh, the Lord Jesus. And then there was the resurrection, which we celebrated last uh, Sunday, and of course we do every day of our lives. And then there was the ascension, and we know about it. And we appreciate, most of us, the ramifications of the ascension of Christ, but his disciples did not get it. I'm uh, refreshed to see how little they really got. They were filled with misunderstanding. Uh, Here's what they thought. The messianic kingdom on earth would mean for them great privilege and power and prestige. Finally, the long-awaited Messiah had come, and they are imagining all the benefits that would accrue to their account. Not only would they be liberated from Roman oppression, there might even be material riches in it for them. They had a very limited understanding of what it meant to submit to Messiah Jesus. And then... To them, almost out of the blue, he told them, I'll be leaving shortly. And it would be, in fact, just a few hours from those comments. There was the Last Supper, the Passover dinner, that he transformed into the Lord's Supper, which we celebrate today often. And as he is there with them, the 11 are left, a 12th abandoned them. You know, Judas, the betrayer, had left. The Lord has a limited amount of time and he wants to take advantage of it before they make the walk down to the Garden of Gethsemane uh, across the Kidron Valley on the Mount of Olives and he loves them. Therefore, he wants to prepare them for what is to come. It will not be quite as glamorous as they think to be part of the Messianic Kingdom. In fact, he's quite honest to them. Why should it be different for them than their master as he is persecuted? So too, they'll experience it. In fact, the Lord told them what the normal Christian life would be like, and it would be characterized not so much by prosperity, but the normative experience for Christians would not be prosperity. It would be adversity, in fact. Well, they, they are overwhelmed by all this. It's not what they expected at all. And so soon he'll be going. They don't understand what's going on, and because he loves them, he's taking pains to prepare them for what's going to happen. And this is what he says to them, therefore, in John chapter 16, beginning in verse 5. That's where we left off last time we were together. John chapter 16, verse 5. We'll look at a few verses tonight. I think you will, uh, I hope, find these to be interesting and helpful. John chapter 16, verse 5, the Lord said, but now I'm going to him who sent me That's his purpose. He came. He was crucified in an enfleshed state. He was buried. That proved that he was dead. He rose up from it. What's proof of that? The empty tomb is. And then he ascended to return to the Father. He's talking to them about it. I'm going to him who sent me. Look what he says. And none of you asks me, where are you going? He was quite... uh, honest with them. Uh, The reason they didn't ask him what you would think is the most pertinent question at the time, where are you going? And he knows why they didn't ask him that. Look, but because I have said these things to you, these things about his departure, because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Here's a God acquainted with emotion. He experienced them. Of course, he blessed us with emotion. And emotions are tricky tricky kinds of things. 
Susan and I were talking about that a little earlier tonight. They're just tricky things. And their emotional state of affairs was that they were sorrowful. Again, I don't think we could appreciate how devastating it was to hear that their king was going to leave them to what they knew not. And they were so overcome by sorrow that, frankly, they were distracted from the fate which would befall him. He loves us anyway, you know. Sometimes our emotions do that. They distract us from the Lord Jesus. Sometimes we withhold worship. And his, the attention, which is his due, that's what's happening here. He says, you're not even asking me where I'm going. You're, 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 you're so consumed by your own sorrow. You're so distracted by it. You're not even asking me about my fate and where I, I am going to. And so uh, the Lord says to them now in verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Now, they, they didn't get that at all. It's to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper, your translation might render it differently. Maybe it'll say advocate. I don't know. The helper shall not come to you if I don't go away, but if I go, I will, I will send him to you. Of course, we know the helper is a reference to the Holy Spirit, the very Spirit of God. Now, the Lord does many things, let's be honest, you and I do not understand. But the Lord does nothing that is not to our advantage. And even his departure, though they cannot comprehend how that's a good thing, even that, the Lord says, is a good thing. Me leaving you, he says to them, though it's causing you great sorrow and grief, me leaving you is a good thing for you. And I assure you, they didn't get it at all. But here's how his departure from them would really be in their best interests. You see, while with them, you know this, he could only be at one place at a time. Do you understand that? Jesus, though fully God, laid aside voluntarily some of his divine privileges, one of which is omnipresence. And when he came here to be in flesh, just like you and I, by definition, he subjected himself to the confinement of a human body. Uh, his human body was no different than your. You can only be where you are now. You can't be any other place. You are limited to space and time. And the Lord Jesus did the same thing. And so while he was in that state of affairs, while confined to his physical body, think about it, Jesus could not touch, Jesus could not reach, Jesus could not connect with all people everywhere. No, no, he was confined. He was constrained to a human body. He was limited by the same dimensions that limit us, space and time. However, when he departed, when he ascended back to the Father, he said, I'll send the helper. I'll send the Spirit to you. The prerequisite for the Spirit coming was Jesus going, and that's why his going, though they didn't get it, was a good thing for them. He said, I'll send the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the ascended Lord. I'll send him into the lives of all who call upon my name. And so the Lord Jesus, once again, while here in a physical body, he could help a limited number of people directly and in a limited number of places. Folks, I don't want to hurt your feelings nor offend you, but he never made it to Houston, Texas. His ministry was limited to a very narrow parcel of land the size of New Jersey. He never left that particular 
land because he was confined to his physical body. But when he, when he ascended, he sent his spirit, the helper, and then made for new and far-reaching possibilities that were not there for as long as he was constrained to a physical body. The Lord's body could only be just like yours and mine in one place at a time. But the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, can be in every single believer at all times and in all places. Imagine what it would have been like to be there with Jesus and to have Jesus stand right beside you. That would be marvelous indeed. And yet, in a way, we actually have it better than that now. We do not merely have God the Son standing beside us from time to time. Now we have the Spirit of Christ dwelling in us at all times. Can you see what the Lord meant when he said, it's really better for you? You're overcome by sorrow because your, 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 your understanding is so limited. But I'm telling you, take it by faith. It's really better for you if I do this, if I depart from you. So now we have a resident helper, paraclete, like parallel, the helper who comes right alongside us. And what does he do? Well, he lives in us to comfort us. And he lives in us to encourage us. You know what he does? He lives in us to empower our witnessing for Christ. He does all these things. The Son of God had to have a physical body in order for his work to be done on earth. And think about this. In the same way, the Spirit of God also has to have a body of sorts to accomplish his work on earth. And you know who the body is that the Spirit works through? Look around. It's the church of Jesus Christ. We're the vehicle by which the Spirit of God has chosen to work. We are his tools and his vessels for the purpose of glorifying the risen and ascended Lord Jesus. We're his tools in order to be witnesses for him. Um, John and Susan and others represented the Lord Jesus to that guy right there. God bless you, brother. What a blessing to observe your baptism. You, you blessed us by obeying God in so doing. And I don't know if you fully understand this, but in a way you gave God a gift. What could you give God who has everything? It's your public declaration that you belong to Jesus and you're not ashamed about it. That's just what you did in those waters. Well, John didn't lead you to the Lord, neither did Susan. The Spirit of God worked in your life. Oh, oh through Susan and through John, but they're just vehicles and vessels. And so we're really glad he did, affected your heart, and here you are in the family of God. God bless you, brother. God bless you. Well, listen, notice what the resident helper, the Holy Spirit, intends to do specifically through us. It's expressed in verse 8 and following. Take a look. And he, that's the Holy Spirit, when he... Isn't that interesting? It doesn't say, and it, when it. <laughs> you would think that, um, because the word spirit is neuter, and you would think it would bear a, the neuter word it, but here you have the word he, because the Holy Spirit is not an influence, an energy, a force. You know, let the force be with you. No, no, no. The Holy Spirit is a person. He has personality, just like God the Father just like God the Son. So, and he, when he comes, here's what he'll do, will convict. Maybe your Bible says, will convince. 
same idea, will convince the world concerning three things are specifically mentioned here. They are, if you do not have this in your Bible, get yourself a new Bible. It should say sin and then righteousness and then judgment. That's what the Holy Spirit came to do through one's little ones, just like you and I, inadequate and undeserving ones, just like you and I. The Holy Spirit came to inhabit us take up his dwelling in us, believers all around the world, for the purpose of convincing people we talk to of sin and righteousness and judgment. We, by implication, can't do that. This ought to take the pressure of all of us who witness for Christ. We cannot do that. We cannot convince people of their sin, of God's righteousness, and of God's judgment. We can't do that. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. I'm glad to know that. I want to know what I'm required to do and what I cannot do. I just found out. I cannot persuade someone to acknowledge his or her sin, take on the righteousness of Christ, and thus be ready for the judgment. I can't, I can't do that. Neither can you. That's not our role. That's the role of the Holy Spirit working through us. You know what the Holy Spirit is like? A uh, prosecuting attorney. That's not us. That's the Holy Spirit, which means, you know what? We are witnesses for the prosecution. We are not the prosecutor. We are witnesses for the prosecution, and that makes the people we witness to, you know what it makes them? The accused, the guilty parties. Everyone ought to know their role. We're not the prosecuting attorney. We're the witnesses to those who stand guilty apart from Christ. And so we present the gospel, but we cannot convince someone of his or her sin. The Holy Spirit does that. Now, when someone is wonderfully convinced of his sin or her sin, by the Holy Spirit working through our proclamation of the gospel, when someone is convicted of his or her sin, is that one automatically saved? No. I wish that was the case, but it's simply not true. The conviction of sin which only the Holy Spirit working through us can produce, is necessary for salvation, but not sufficient for salvation. You can realize you've sinned and then not turn to the sin bearer. Wow, that is a desperately horrible reality. After a person is convicted of sin, he must accept Jesus, the sin bearer. So all who are saved, have been convinced of their sin, but not all who are convinced of their sin are automatically saved. Can you see it? It's just not awareness of our shortcomings and violation of the commandments of God. It has to be such awareness we're so overcome by it, we feel so desperately vulnerable to the judgment of a holy God that we rush to the foot of the cross and take on the blood of Jesus as the cleansing agent. That's what saves. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. Now, in today's day and age, uh, Christians, did you know this, are the most persecuted people group on earth, most persecuted people group on earth. Of course, you know about the tragedy in Sri Lanka on Easter Sunday, close to 300 massacred, uh, evil ones specifically targeted them in churches. It's very interesting to me how some folks of notoriety in their um, messages about it 
Twitter and Facebook and all that, they labeled those who perish Easter worshipers. Why didn't they call them who they were, Christians? Who in the world worships Easter? Kind of a bizarre title is that anyway. Are you an Easter worshiper? You're not an Easter worshiper. You're a child of the king who came to worship the king on Easter Sunday. That's a big difference. Why don't they admit it that Christians are being targeted today? And why don't they admit who did it? It's those who hold to a false deity named Allah. And you read a book, a false Bible called the Quran, and the logical expression of the Quran is to deal with the infidels harshly. You know who the infidels are? You is. I'll never forget when we were in Israel on one occasion. It was Ramadan. That's a special Muslim feast, holiday. Muslim people came from many, many places. They flooded Jerusalem during that occasion. We were walking through the streets. And for the first time, I heard this. They were pointing to us. And in unison, they were saying, infidels, infidels, infidels. That's what they were doing. I didn't say every Muslim is a violent terrorist out to get us. <clears throat> I am saying that's the logical conclusion of the Quran. That's what it teaches. Infidels are to be converted or killed. That's the teaching thereof. When are we going to face the facts and admit that those who are separated out by Almighty God will be targeted by those who are not? Well, uh, Christians are being in increasing numbers being persecuted and prosecuted around the world today, and yet this is an interesting irony. It is really Christians indwelt by the Holy Spirit who are actually, actually the ones who are, in a way, prosecuting them. The world judges Christians increasingly, but it is actually Christians, when they witness for Christ, who are, in essence, passing judgment on them. Very interesting. So then the helper, the Holy Spirit, has been sent to us by the ascended Lord Jesus to work through our gospel sharing in convincing the world of sin. And what is the fundamental sin? It's important to get this right. What's the fundamental sin that is committed by non-believers? Here it is, verse 9. Concerning sin, look, because they do not believe in me. That is the greatest sin. That is the great sin against God. To reject God's only begotten Son is the fundamental sin against God, who, in fact, sent him to save us. So what is it about this sin, the sin of unbelief, that is, in fact, so serious? It, it is only this sin, <laughs> the sin of unbelief, that condemns a sinner to eternal damnation. Did you know that? It is not the commission of individual specific sins that is the ultimate problem. The ultimate problem is not sin. It's the unbelief that seals, the unbelief in the sin bearer that seals our eternal destiny. Folks, we, do you know this? We can never on our own be free of sin. Did you, have you tried to perfect yourself? Doesn't work. We, we cannot clean up our own act. How many New Year's resolutions have you made that fell through in about three to four days? We cannot so render ourselves okay to God through our self-efforts that he will 
pronounce upon us a measure of righteousness. And yet this is exactly what a lot of people are striving to do. I will be a better person. I will be righteous. I will be religious. I'll go to church. I won't smoke. I won't drink. How about this one? I won't dance. That's like the big bad one, you know what I mean? Apparently. But these are not the things that keep us out of heaven. These are not the real issue. The issue, the damning sin, is not drinking or stealing or lying or sleeping around. No, the damning sin is rejection of the one who suffered and died for all of those sins. That's the sin against God that cannot be forgiven. You know, if you went out to the streets of Houston later tonight, if you had nothing to do, and you did a survey of people, and you asked them to give you a list of what they thought were sins, most would probably say things like murder and lying and stealing and, you know, stuff like that. But it's doubtful you run into many, maybe not any, who would say that not believing in Jesus is a sin. And yet that is the sin that Jesus identifies as the condemning one in verse 9. This is the sin that the Holy Spirit working in us, working through us, came to convince people of. So a person's sins are not the issue. The issue is the sin of rejecting God's Son, whose death is the only remedy for our sin. Therefore, our witness, folks, should not focus on the sins of the one we are witnessing to, Stop committing adultery, stop gluttony, stop, you know, this addiction or that. That should not be the focus of our witness. Our witness should focus on the sin of rejecting Jesus, who is the sin bearer. That's the one sin that sends people to hell, not believing in Jesus. So to believe in Jesus is to be saved from sin, all of them. To believe in Jesus, to have all sins forgiven, And to refuse to accept Jesus is to remain eternally in sin. Gesundheit. So people don't go to hell because they sneeze loudly in church. People don't go to hell because they cuss, because they smoke or drink or sleep around. People go to hell because they have rejected Jesus, the Son of God, who came for the very purpose that our sins could be forgiven. So the ascended Christ sent the Holy Spirit to work through us in convincing people of their sin, uh, but also to convince people of a second thing, God's righteousness. Here it is now, verse 10. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer behold me. What does all that mean? Well, the Holy Spirit, working through our words... Uh, convinces sinners of their unrighteousness and of God's righteousness. Look, Jesus was crucified, and, and you know, he was considered a common criminal. In my background, Jewish tradition, you're cursed if that's how you meet your fate. Cursed is he who hangs on a tree. That's the most vile form of public execution. It's degrading, and it doesn't dignify the person. It's reserved for lowly, common criminals. And so when Jesus was crucified, I guarantee the Romans, the Jews, uh, thought for sure he got what he deserved, and he's no king of anybody. He's a reprobate. He's a common criminal. And then Jesus surprised everybody by rising up from death. (laughs) 
by leaving the tomb empty, and in so doing, resurrection and ascension, that was God the Father's way of vindicating the Son and saying, y'all are wrong to think he's a common criminal. Y'all are wrong to think there was something inherently wrong with him. He had no sin. He bore yours. And so as to demonstrate to you that he is my only begotten son with whom I am well pleased, boom, there was the resurrection and the ascension. And so it says concerning righteousness, I go to the Father. You see his resurrection and ascension demonstrated he was in right standing with the Father. People cussed at him, abused him. Accused him of the most vilest of crimes, of blasphemy, this, that, and the other thing. And the father raised him up. And so Jesus said, no, no, no. My right standing with the father is demonstrated by the fact that I go to the father. Now, when it comes to righteousness, that is to say being right with God, you only have two options. One, you can establish your own. Two, you can accept the perfectly righteous one, Jesus. Those are the only options. In fact, Paul tells us quite clearly how the second option works, how the righteousness of Christ is imputed to our account. Here it is, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become, here it is, the righteousness of God in him. So he, the sinless one, took our sin upon himself and, in fact, gave us his righteousness. What a transfer. He took our sin. We get his righteousness. That's a good deal. That's a good exchange. But non-believers who reject that have no choice but to establish some measure of their own righteousness before Almighty God. And this often takes the form of good deeds and religion or humanitarian projects and of various kinds. It's the same thing as an apron of leaves that Adam and Eve fashioned way back in Genesis 3. By the way, that's the first religion. They stood naked before Almighty God. They knew they were vulnerable. Instead of throwing themselves upon his mercy and grace, they fashioned an apron of leaves in a vain attempt to cover for their nakedness. That's the first religion, and every religion since has followed suit. It's man's attempt to establish his or her own righteousness. And some of the most notorious at it are, are, are famous people, Hollywood people. It's ama- amazing to me. Fame and wealth has really gone to their head and revealed their heart. And generally speaking, not all, but generally speaking, um, they live in unbridled sin. One partner after another, anything goes, all the rest. And yet they're at the forefront of all these humanitarian causes. Usually it's the environment. Let's get new light bulbs, you know, let's get smaller cars, whatever the deal is. Isn't that crazy? What what an evasive tactic. The problem, they say, is not pollution in me. It's out there in the air, in the water. Let's just do that. So they're on the forefront of philanthropic, humanitarian causes. You know, let's rescue orphans and provide homes for the homeless. I didn't say these are wrong things, but don't you see their main's vain attempt to fool himself into thinking, I can establish a measure of righteousness myself. I don't know. I don't need to submit to Jesus. That's kind of what's going on. So they come up with things like, it's just not wrong if you don't hurt anyone. That's another way to justify your own inadequate righteousness. It's not wrong 
if you don't hurt anybody. It's not wrong if it makes you feel good. How about this one? God is loving. He wouldn't send anyone to hell. I hear that one a lot. How about this one? Two people love each other. When they love each other, whether they're heterosexual or homosexual, what's wrong with it in God's eyes, etc., etc.? So the Holy Spirit, whom the ascended Jesus would send, would convict the world of its sin and of its inadequate sense of righteousness. You know, I, I come from a traditional Jewish background, orthodox in fact. Many rabbis in my family, I tried to get into it, thank God, I realized my righteousness was inadequate. We have rules and regulations for everything. When you're supposed to stand, when you're supposed to get up. I remember one time I was biting my fingernails and one of my rabbi cousins told me, don't do that. You're desecrating the human body. You know, I mean, there's something, whatever. So I stopped biting my fingernails. I had to come up with some other bad habit. You know, I, I mean, it's just gone up. But I really tried to, I really tried to get into it. And then I realized at the end of it all, Good night. Our rabbis gave us 613 commandments to live by every single day. On a good day, how many of those are you, are you handling? Well, I thought, not too many, therefore why even try? So I just went to the other extreme and just said, if it feels good, do it. Because it surely doesn't feel good to try to comply with 613 commandments uh, to try to establish your own righteousness with God. You see how terrible it is? My goodness. And so the Holy Spirit, his job is to convince us of our lame attempts at being right with God through religion, through good deeds, and all the rest. And so uh, when we read here, and concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, you no longer behold me. Uh, here, this is a statement of true righteousness, and we see it is connected with the truly righteous one when he completed his work of redemption on the cross and then returned to the Father. He is the basis of our righteousness with the Father. And so the Holy Spirit, through our witnessing, this is an amazing partnership, he came to convince sinners of the fact that true righteousness can only come by accepting the one who has passed from the cross back to the Father's side. So the Holy Spirit's work through us is to convince people of sin and of righteousness. One more thing, judgment. Here it is, verse 11. That'll be our last verse tonight, verse 11. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this, who is the ruler of this world? Yeah, that's Satan. So this says judgment because the ruler, Satan, the ruler of this world has been, past tense, has been judged. So here's the deal. Satan is God's ultimate foe. And he is the world's ultimate evil doer. If God has, as this verse says, already judged Satan, who is the ultimate sinner, certainly God has the will, the power, and the authority to judge all sinners. That's the point here. If God judged the big sinner, how do you think you'll escape his judgment? That's the deal. But how is it that God, as it says, has already judged Satan, well, final judgment, not yet fully executed, but final judgment was pronounced upon Satan at the cross and on the empty tomb because, as I said, the crucified one carried our sins. What a defeat for Satan, the accuser. The accuser, look what they've done, Father. Look how they sinned. And he's right about that. But we got an acquittal. 
because of Jesus' blood. And the empty tomb really defeated Satan because Satan would make out Jesus to be the guilty party uh, who died a criminal's death. But the empty tomb was the Father's way of saying, no way, my son is vindicated. So the cross and the empty tomb are what defeated Satan. Since, therefore, the ruler of this world stands condemned, his children can expect the same treatment. The Holy Spirit, only he can convince people of that. Now, am I saying that those who refuse Jesus are actually to be considered children of the devil? Yes, I am saying that. Why? Because when it comes to Jesus, there is no such thing as neutrality. A person either accepts him or rejects him, and on this basis, a person is either a child of God or a child of Satan. That's the way. There is no third option. So Satan is the source of man's sin and rebellion against God. He's the driving force behind all sin. And therefore, when Jesus died on the cross of Calvary, he was entirely defeated. And if Satan himself has been condemned at the cross, then surely every other sinner's judgment is certain as well. Now, close with this. Evangelism is not just difficult. It is impossible. Think about this. How in the world can puny folk like you and I ever hope, ever expect to convince anybody <laughs> that coming to Christ means they have to acknowledge their sin, they have to acknowledge Christ's righteousness, and they have to acknowledge God's judgment to come apart from... How in the world can inadequate, flawed vessels like you and I ever pull that off? How could we expect anyone through us to come to Christ? I'll tell you how. We can expect people to come to Christ the same way we did. I'll tell you how we came to Christ. We were convinced by the Helper, the Holy Spirit, of our sin and of Christ's righteousness and of God's judgment, which could be avoided. And we were convinced by it because somebody shared the gospel with us in some fashion. Radio, TV, attract, I don't know. Sagemont Church in one of the security offices, I don't know. It is impossible, a task for us to accomplish, but what a grand partnership has been established between us and the helper who is in us he, the prosecuting attorney, we the witnesses. So I close with this. Tell me if this is a, a good illustration where I'm missing the point here. I'm riding down Hughes Road the other day. There's a lady riding in front of me in a car. She had a bumper sticker. I can't even tell you what it said. Gross. Vulgar. I got real mad. Okay, I can handle it. What if my grandchild, who can read, was with me? I was so mad. How could a person think that is acceptable in the public affair to ride down the street here in Houston, Texas and proclaim the most vulgar thing? Words even thinking about it, uh, it defiles me. How could someone think that is acceptable? How could someone impose that upon children and all the rest in their face? And so I picked up 
uh, my speed. I actually, I actually, I wanted to ram the car. <laughs> what? Why lie? I didn't want to take out the person, but man, I'd wreck that bumper. And then there was a light up ahead. Turn red, turn red. I want to pull right alongside. Roll down your window. I don't want to talk to that person. What right do you have to put that in my face? And then I realized something. If I did that, and even if the person responded well and said, I'm sorry, I'll take off the bumper sticker. Is that person going to heaven because they took off the bumper sticker? And I thought, oh, I'm more prone to operate as the prosecuting attorney than as the witness. That's not the sin that keeps that person out of heaven. It's rejection of Jesus. I have to witness to that person of him. It's the Holy Spirit who has to convict that person of the bumper sticker sin and all others. That is not my job. And if I focus on the bumper sticker sin, I may win the battle and lose the doggone war. Because God's not going to give me the grace to be the prosecuting attorney. I can get that person to maybe clean up her act in terms of what's put on the bumper sticker, but they're not one step closer to heaven. And many of us have blown our testimony because we have occupied the role of the prosecuting attorney instead of the witness. Once someone accepts Christ, regeneration takes place. They get saved not only from sin, but goofy thinking. They get the mind of Christ, and many, like you and me, we don't need someone preaching to us about a vulgar bumper sticker, something. No, someone in us tells us it's time to remove the bumper sticker. Can you see? So my fellow witnesses for Christ, let's go from this place, remembering who we are and who we ain't. We are not the prosecuting attorney. Our job is not to get people to live moral and ethical lives and thus give them the false assurance that that righteousness is adequate for heaven. No, 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 no. Our job is to present Christ in an effective way, of course, through our lives and then through our lips in the hope that as we are doing the impossible, the Holy Spirit will make even more probable the conviction of that person's sin, Christ's righteousness, and the avoidance of God's impending judgment. He's the prosecuting attorney, not you or I. So, dear folks, let's go out this week. The burden is relieved. We don't have to persuade. We, we can't say. We can't do any of this stuff. Ours is the responsibility, and what a privilege. At John, Susan, and others, how much money, <laughs> what price would you put on the astounding joy and privilege of being able to share the gospel with that guy and see God work in his heart and usher him into the... Would you take a million dollars for it? Of course not. It's exhilarating to operate in partnership with the Holy Spirit. May you and I do so even this week. In fact, let's pray towards that end. Lord Jesus, we bow before you with great, great thanksgiving. Thank you for saving us through ordinary people and the extraordinary convincing work of your spirit 
in those ordinary people. And now we pray you would put it in us to go and do likewise. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, amen.